Hey, this is The Last Coffee House. I am looking at Sam Harris reading list, In Cold Blood. I don't know what number this is, but this one is In Cold Blood, which most people should have heard of. The author is Truman Capote. It was published in 1966. It's a true crime chronicle of the murder of the Clutter family in the small community of Holcomb, Kansas. It involves the, the two perpetrators, uh, the names Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. And a movie was created about it with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I forget what year... I think it was like 2005 or something like that. But, and I think he got nominated for that, didn't he? But it was, it was a very good movie. Uh, it's enjoyable seeing the background of all this stuff. It had, what's her name? What's her name? She did a good job playing Harper Lee. Anyway, it was the movie was called Capote. The basic story for anybody who doesn't know, and there might be some spoilers in here. Like, you know what's going to happen before when it starts. But So anyway, anybody should know this anyway. It all occurred in November 1959, and in perpetrating what was supposed to be a simple robbery, for tantalizingly opaque reasons, the entire family was brutally murdered of the Clutter family. There were four of them. The two perpetrators fled. I think they went down to Mexico at one point and then came back. But a manhunt was executed by was Sheriff Dewey of Holcomb, played by Chris Cooper, I believe, in the movie. And Truman Capote actually decided to, and he's the author of, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, wrote for the New Yorker. He decided to write about the murders when he read about the, the initial case uh, before uh, the killers were actually identified. So this was just after the murders had taken place. He read about these grisly murders in Holcomb, Kansas, and decided to write about it. So the two were eventually implicated by a cellmate that they had talked to in a very I don't know, unceremonious or anticlimactic kind of fashion. And they were arrested for the murder. But the process after this is Capote, the author, kind of becoming enchanted with the the killers. But maybe more, I mean, when I'm reading it, it might be more the subject matter. And, and, and that's one of the things that I got, one of the things that makes it so fascinating, is that Capote seems to, you wonder if there's a genuine interest in any of the people, or whether it's really more about the subject. Uh, that he gets to talk about and write about because he knew how big and crazy it was. So eventually, after many appeals and untold correspondences, the two are executed and Capote finishes his book. So some criticism. Uh, this is from uh, an article entitled A Cold-Blooded Happening by George Steiner. This was published in 1965. And uh, I think this is, so this is like an early copy he got to read of it or something. Or he was reading just the New Yorker pieces that came out before the book because it initially was just going to be an article in the New Yorker, but it became a, a whole book. It's been described as... And I think Capote described it as a non-fiction novel. And this is a quote about the details in the book from the, this particular reviewer. Every detail tells. The, the authority with which Capote introduces a physical object, the 200 homemade pies, 250 pounds of hamburger meat, and 60 pounds of sliced ham consumed at the auction of the Clutter Homestead, is uncanny. Only a writer who had gone through the school of a novel could so beautifully render the feel of a pair of cheap shoes, the dead smell of roadhouse linen, the strident silence of death row in the Kansas State Penitentiary, for men where Perry Smith and Dick Hickok waited almost 2,000 days until every slow cog in the machinery of American legal appeal had ground to a stop. So that's what the, the reviewer was talking about. 
Another quote, Truman Capote's observance has left the night roads of America a little more inhuman, the automobile graveyards a little more sinister than he found them. This is a masterful book, so kind of likes it. This is later, but I suspect that Porphyry's interrogation of Raskolnikov and crime and punishment will remain inexhaustible to the imagination, where police officer Dewey's grilling of Smith and Hickok is dead mutton, glittering, brilliantly anatomized, but stone dead. So that's, I don't think it's as much a, a criticism as a... As a distinction, I definitely remember Porphyry's interrogation of Raskolnikov. It resonated from my early childhood. But yes, the I remember Dewey's grilling of Smith and Hickok. I just remember what threw them under the bus. <laughs> but still, as he says, brilliantly anatomized and stone dead, which could, of course, be the point. So my thoughts. It's kind of a book, and I don't know if this is a true crime thing, but it's a book that I'm kind of always in the mood for. I can always just start reading it whenever. Uh, I have the paperback and the audiobook, and there's something <laughs> vaguely offensive by how much the author actually insinuates himself, not just literally by engaging with Smith and Hickok, but in the writing and reporting himself. There's a lot of the writer in the happenings that are going on with this case, and you would think when it comes to a writer or somebody reporting on something, something like this, that they extricate themselves entirely from it, you know, and if you're, if there's a little bit of bleed over, you try to avoid that as much as possible, but it seemed to be kind of what Capote relished in, uh, was being part of this story and engaging with these people. So, one of the things that results are kind of psychological complexities of the killers, uh, at least the killer, and you wonder whether it's actually justified or not to consider them psychologically complex, or this was something that's uh, an embellishment either, because Capote reconstructed so much of the dialogue. <laughs> So these are the, he didn't like just record all this stuff and report it. So much of this was constructed by the writer. So you wonder how much of it is embellished just in, I don't know, in tone and word choice and whatever else. Just trying to grasp the, the ideas behind it as opposed to what actually happened. And I understand how this is because I actually, I'm just finishing a work that's based on something that actually happened to me. And it's difficult to create that fine line. There are feelings that you had as a result of this thing that happened, but they aren't necessarily what actually happened, but they might convey what happened in a metaphorically astute way that makes sense, you know? So it's, it's tough walking that line <laughs> anyway. So, Capote is certainly partial to Perry as things go along, and there's at least, uh, and I hope I don't get into trouble for this, but there's at least a pseudo-sexual relationship between Hickok and Perry, and they're also, I mean, at times they're totally willing to throw the other one under the bus, and, and they talk at length about killing the other person, how they should have killed the other person, all that. But there are certain things that are suggestive of a pseudo-sexual relationship, not that they ever had sex, but there, there was a, a dormant homosexual attraction between the two that led to a lot of, or animated a lot of their interactions. And I wonder, and one of that thing, and I hope, I know, I just read this book, so I hope I'm not importing anything from the movie, but it was, it was using the word baby, is that Hickok constantly called Perry baby, they talked about each other's physiques and, and that sort of thing. So there, there are instances and things that seem to suggest that there's something going on like that. And I wonder if Capote, if that was a kind of, uh, obviously he was gay, I wonder if that was a kind of attraction to to this this setup and the, there's something about a release in uh in dealing with people who are so uninhibited with what they do or don't do there's some kind of a release in that getting to 
see what that is, what that's like. It's like when you watch a movie and the protagonist and the antagonist are so similar. Uh, you know, they're, they're virtually just mirror images of the same thing. They're both incredibly capable and good looking and, and all that sort of stuff. And But one of them's evil, one of them's good. And you get to experience both of those things as a viewer. And I wonder if that had something to do with it, especially because Perry had this thing where he he was uh, an intellectual monkey. He, he wasn't really an intellectual, but he, he pretended himself to be, and I wonder if that was a part of the attraction as well, that Capote could see himself in Perry, in the fragility, in the things that were horrible in his past, and all that sort of stuff. And that's what, what part of the, the affection was. Because obviously these, these people perpetrated a horrendous crime. So anyway, I'm not... <laughs> I'm acting like this is some kind of a, a grand revelation about what the motivations might be. It's not that grand. <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty straightforward, but whatever the case, it's still, it makes it interesting. And I definitely, I have a sense of the personalities of all the characters. Just generally, there's nothing that's cliche or anything like that about, and obviously it's real people, so hopefully it wouldn't be, but I've seen movies that are based on real people that are definitely cliche and not real at all. These characters, however, definitely seem real. They seem legitimate and they have distinct personalities without resorting to some kind of just simple traits that distinguish them from one another. Just like Dewey and Perry and Hickok and and a lot of the Clutter family, especially the father and the daughter, they all stick out in certain ways that, that make it really easy to think about them. And Capote, of course, himself. So what are some, some moments in there that I think about uh, Perry fasting when he gets caught for an extended period of time and kind of that taking that control and you wonder what implications that has on the morality of it because later you find out out, you know, the the big revelation in the book, oh, I won't spoil it, whatever. <laughs> But and the the idea Perry's use of vocabulary and how he just shoehorns in all these big words to try to sound smart and at a certain point it's it's not cute anymore for for Capote and the idea of the how instantly the massacre occurred when you hear the description of it that that's shocking and the <laughs> the failure at game theory by the two killers uh, the fact that they both failed the prisoner's dilemma and just ratted each other out so I've got some quotes got some quotes from the book and. I I took these because uh, I listened to these, like I said, I listened to these on audiobooks, so I didn't get to record quotes as I was going along. So these ones I just took from the ones that I remembered from online. I think it was on Goodreads site about it. Quote, just remember if one bird carried every grain of sand grain by grain across the ocean, by the time he got them all on the other side, that would only be the beginning of eternity. All right, end quote. Not so end quote all right sorry <laughs> quote you are a man of extreme passion a hungry man not quite sure where his appetite lies a deeply frustrated man striving to protect his individuality against a backdrop of rigid conformity you exist in a half world suspended by two superstructures one self-expression and the other self-destruction you are strong but there's a flaw in your strength and unless you learn to control it the flaw will prove stronger than your strength and, and defeat you I think this was, this isn't part of the quote, this end quote. I think this was part of a letter that was sent to Perry from a very smart friend that they were in prison with at some point or something like that. Quote, the flaw, explosive emotional reaction out of all proportion to the occasion. Why? Why this unreasonable anger at the sight of others who are happy or content, this growing contempt for people and the desire to hurt them? All right, you think they're fools? You despise them because their morals, their happiness is the source of your frustration and resentment? But these are dreadful enemies you carry within yourself in time destructive as bullets. Mercifully, a bullet kills its victim. The other bacteria permitted to age does not kill a man but leaves in
in its wake the hulk of a creature torn and twisted. There is still fire within his being, but it is kept alive by casting upon it faggots of scorn and hate. He may successfully accumulate, but he does not accumulate success, for he is his own enemy and is kept from truly enjoying his achievements." End quote. Obviously that word, that particular word, it specifically means bundles of sticks in this context in this book. So anyway, just so yeah, hear me, hear me on that one. Quote, I thought that Mr. Clutter was a very nice gentleman. I thought so right up to the moment that I cut his throat. End quote. I remember that struck me big time when I first read it. Quote, her bedroom window overlooked the garden and now and then usually when she was having a bad spell, Mr. Helm had seen her stand long hours gazing into the garden as though what he saw bewitched her. When I was a girl, she had once told a friend, I was terribly sure trees and flowers were the same as birds or people, that they thought things and talked among themselves. And we could hear them if we really tried. It was just a matter of emptying your head of all other sounds, being very quiet and listening very hard. Sometimes I still believe that, but one can never get quiet enough, end quote. All right, so that, that was uh, Nancy talking talking about that stuff. Conclusion, read it. Uh, yeah, people should read it. It's totally worth reading. Just read the read the thing. It's true crime, so it's easy to read. I'm sure most people have read it by now. It sold millions of copies originally, but popularity in this case is not a hallmark of mediocrity. <laughs> So uh, I think it's totally worth reading. It's got big ideas, a compromised narrator, which always makes it fun. It's distinctly American, so it's it's totally worth worth a read. And it's something that, you know, I'd love to have deeper dis- discussions about it and what, I don't know, kind of moral liability Capote has for the way that he did it and the way that he wrote it and the way that he insinuated himself into the proceedings. But anyway... That's In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, and that was best, no, this is a Sam Harris reading list. Not best of literature, Sam Harris reading list, <laughs> number whatever it is. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.